The sermon title is Not Unmerited Grace, which was a fine guess by a dear sister. A fine sermon title it would be, but I don't find that that matches this chapter of Genesis appropriately. And so we'll go with unfolding grace. Unfolding grace. And while the grace that Isaac experiences is unmerited, and that should be noted, it is unfolding in his life, one chapter of his life at a time, kind of like a map, right? You unfold the map and you, you see, oh, we have to go there, we have to go there, we have to go there. And, and if you fold the map up, it might look kind of like, hey, look, it's just from here to there, right? Um, but there's a whole lot in between if you unfold that map. And your life's a little bit like a map yet to be unfolded. And as a Christian, you know, we know the end thereof is heaven. The end of our life, the end of the road is a new heavens and a new earth in which only righteousness dwells and we are the Lord's children forever in his presence with all of God's saints from all the ages. That's the end of the road and we are to pray it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But there's a lot of folds in the map between here and there. And when you consider the Lord's call on Abraham's life, and then the extension of that call and covenant to Isaac, there are a whole lot of folds in the map of the Abrahamic covenant finally being fulfilled. And the end of the road, the end of the Abrahamic covenant, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant doesn't come until that new heavens and new earth comes. That's when the land and the seed and the blessing, those covenant promises will be fully and gloriously realized. And so there's that greater map being unfolded yet, and we're still in one of those folds right now. That's where we live and exist and dwell. And then there's each individual life, and in particular today, Isaac's life in Genesis chapter 26, unfolding grace, unfolding grace. Let's read together verses 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 26, there was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, live in the land of which I shall tell you, dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you for to you and your descendants, I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. First point, you'd have to be a really good guesser to get this, covenant promise mixed with famine. So covenant promise mixed with famine. These are not flashy points. Don't think just because you have this flashy outline that these are flashy points. But covenant promise mixed with famine. In God's unfolding grace in Isaac's life, we find that the covenant promise comes mixed with famine. And so the the promise that includes these glorious blessings is delivered or re-delivered in the context of famine, of hardship, of difficulty, of trial. And that is the life that God has called all believers to. A life of faith, walking with Him by grace alone, through faith alone, through many 
circumstances that we would not prefer. God is good. God is loving. We all must walk by faith, not by sight. And we must all be subject to God's sovereign rule in our lives, His sovereign directing of our lives according to His perfect plan. And there will be left turns and right turns and dips and rises and mountains and valleys that we would not choose. But the Lord has designed them for us to walk through in faith by the power of His grace for His glory. And so we see covenant promise reiterated in the midst of famine. We would not choose famine. On a national level, even a global level right now, I would not choose the events that are filling our evening news. And yet the Lord has ordained, this is the era we shall live in. And so we must live through this era in faith. Walking with the Lord in faith. Seeking to glorify the Lord in our generation in faith. Isaac doesn't see famine and throw off faith. Throw off his father's faith. Throw off his father's God. And say, ah, the covenant's no good. The covenant's no good. Look, in my father's life, it wasn't realized. This land, it's still not our land. My father had to buy the land that God said he gave him in order to be buried in this land. (laughs) But no, Isaac doesn't say that. Isaac still believes God. Isaac still has his vision set on the end goal, even though there's many folds in between that he doesn't yet know of. But he trusts God, that God's word is good, that God's word is holy, that God's word is true, even when we can't see clearly how it will truly come to pass in all of its details in our life or even in the lives of others. And so God's covenant promise is here mixed with famine. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And remember, famine and every other hardship is not arbitrary. There's no arbitrary famine. It just happened. It just happened. No, God ordained it. And Isaac walks through it in faith. Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines of Gerar. This is not the same Abimelech, roughly 90 years later. It's not the same Abimelech that Abraham dealt with. It seems to be the name of the man in the position, like a title. Verse 2, Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Do not go down to Egypt. I don't know if that's what's in Isaac's heart. Commentators speculate. I don't know. But the Lord clearly states, don't go down to Egypt. Egypt, a a place of power, a place of prominence, a place of provision, often because of the Nile, right? That Nile Valley. Don't go down to Egypt. Why? Because the Lord called Abram out from his people, out from his country, his land, to the land of Canaan. And he gave him the land of Canaan. Isaac, this land is your land. This is the land I gave to your father. This is the land I covenant to you. Stay here in your land. Do not go down to Egypt. We must learn that lesson. In hardship, don't flee to Egypt. Flee to God. Flee to God. And flee to the land. Flee to the covenant promises that God has given. Even if the land doesn't seem to be your land. (laughs) It's full of Canaanites. It's full of Philistines. Trust God, believe God, place your faith where God says to place your faith, not in Egypt, 
but in his covenant promises, and more than even his covenant promises, himself, his own character, the goodness of his character, that he has a good plan for you now and forever, even though you can't see all the folds in the map between now and forever. Unfolding grace, covenant promise mixed with famine. Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land which I shall tell you. So you live where I tell you to live. And that's important. That's important. One of the things we reflected upon at men's breakfast yesterday was this is the first time that a family has moved from our church, to my memory, to my knowledge, with the express purpose of moving to another church to serve the Lord in another church. Putting the mission before the needs. Now, they have needs, this dear family. They have needs, and those needs are compelling them in God's providence to move. And we understand that. And God bless them and strengthen them and fill all those needs. But they understand that their greatest need is to live this one precious life that God has given them for His glory. And so they don't want to just move to have their needs met. They want to move strategically to a place to serve God, to continue to be equipped, to continue to have saints to walk with, to fellowship with, and to continue to have a pastor that will say, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's go reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that is highly commendable. And I rejoice in that. And that is in keeping with live in the land, which I tell you to live in. Be careful. I've told young people for all my ministry, don't just move for college and career. Be careful. Even choosing to go to a Christian college or university, be careful. Even in going to a Christian college or university, you're leaving your family and the strength that your family gives you, your immediate family, your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters. And we tend to, we tend to overestimate our own strength and not realize the grace of God that is extended to us through our family members. And then beyond our immediate blood family, there's, there's the blood of Christ family, the body of Christ that the Lord has placed us in and, and the strength that the Lord gives us in the body of Christ. And so we want to be careful that we live strategically and move about the earth strategically, not fleeing to Egypt in order to avoid famine. Living in the land of which I shall tell you, dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. That's where you want to be. You know where where Jesus is? Do you want to be with Jesus? Do you want to be where he's at? Here's where he's at. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all things I've commanded and lo, I'll be with you always. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what he's busy about. Do you want to experience his presence, his power, joy and victory in a world full of famine? in a world full of hardship, then be where Jesus is. That's the reason we're still in this world, is to be busy about Jesus' work. And that's where we will experience the greatest victory and the greatest joy and the greatest peace, where God places us. Even though it seems like, Lord, you you placed me here and you made this covenant with me and you said this is my land. All these Canaanites and these Philistines, and they, they seem to think it's their land. 
And how we need to feel about Portland is that this is God's land. It is God's land. It's not the land of the atheist and the agnostic and the Satanist and the Muslim and the Hindu. It's God's land. And we need to, in our minds, I, in our hearts, drive the flag of Christ into this land. Take it for Christ. That's our mission. We're still fulfilling this covenant called the Abrahamic covenant. We're still taking land for Jesus the King. One soul at a time. One gospel proclamation at a time. And there is no retreat. There is no retreat. Again, I'm not speaking to our dear saints who are moving right now. But if we retreat, right, because we want our best life now, we need to be careful. Not that folks can't move, not that folks can't go because they feel like the Lord is compelling them, but be careful what's compelling you. Be careful. Missionaries historically went to dark lands, pagan lands, atheistic lands, immoral lands, where, yep, all sorts of sexual immorality is going on. There is no biblical concept of marriage or sexuality or morality where theft and murder and every kind of vice are the norm in the culture. That's where missionaries go historically. But now we've got the common Christian response in America right now is where are we going to run to to hide from those we should be reaching? If we all run, we're going to be in a church someday And we're going to say, hey, we need to send missionaries back to those places we ran from. And we might think maybe we should have saved some moving expenses and stayed. And if we're not careful, we're going to have missionaries coming from other countries to reach Portland, Oregon, this most atheist city in the United States. I mean, if I was a Christian in another country with a heart for the gospel, a heart to live one precious life, this one precious life God has given me for His glory, a heart to find a Nineveh on the planet to turn upside down for Jesus, uh, Portland would get my attention. In fact, it did. That's why I'm here. That's why I've stayed here. That's why years ago I came to the Pacific Northwest. Oh yes, there was a school, but it wasn't just the school. It was the region and the city and the state. The most, they said, unchurched. Well, unchurched is a really nice way of saying God-hating. And so... I will be with you to bless you. To you and your descendants, I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. I will perform the oath. I will bless you. I will give these lands to you. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. All the spiritual descendants of Abraham are going to number as like the stars of heaven, a vast multitude. And they will be with the Lord forever. They will know no more pain or death or tears or suffering or famine. They'll be with him forever. I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. In your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's still being fulfilled through us. Your seed, your children are to become godly offspring, to be led to the faith, right? To raise them up as godly offspring to the glory of God and unleash them in the earth 
that they might call others to repentance and faith in Christ to glorify God as servants of the Most High God, washed in the blood of the Lamb by grace alone through faith alone. And so in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We are still the today living out, experiencing the blessing that God promised. We are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Verse 5 is clearly salvation of works, right? No, it's clearly salvation that works. Context, context, context. The gospel is in Genesis. The gospel is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, ultimately in the sacrifice God would provide through the Son that He would provide. And how was, how was Abraham declared righteous in Genesis 12? Abraham's faith was accounted unto him as righteousness. And then you see the evidence of his faith. You see his faith lived out, but it's his faith that's accounted to him as righteousness. And here in Genesis 26, verse 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice. If you love me, you will obey me, my commandments, says Jesus. If you have genuine saving faith, not dead faith, not the faith of demons, right? For even the demons believe and tremble. If you have a living faith, a faith that's the gift of God through the Spirit of God regenerating you, then you not only believe, but you want to obey Jesus. You want to obey God. And so here, the Lord is pointing to the obedience of Abraham, and it is the evidence of his saving faith. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my Laws Was Abraham perfect? He was not, but he was saved perfectly by the grace of God. And his life is marked by radical obedience and radical faith, as our lives should be marked as well. We are not perfect. We are being perfected. We will only know perfection when we put off this body of death, but we should be radically different than we once were. And here's the other truth. You're radically different than you would have been. You're not only you're radically different than you once were, but you're radically different than you would have been. Do you know who you would have been? Think of our culture. Our culture has gone further and further from God. Think back to when you got saved. Where would you be now? I know where some of you were then. I know. And it was bad. I know where I was pre-Christ. It was bad. But where would I be now? Sin isn't static in cultures or individuals. And so you are radically different than you were, and you are radically different than you would have been because of the radical grace of God in your life. Praise God. So covenant promise mixed with famine. Second point, and I like this one, strategery. Strategery. Verse 6, so Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, she is my sister, for he was afraid to say she is my wife, because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Verse 8, now it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say, she is my sister? 
Isaac said to him, Because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And we find a repeat of history. Abraham before him did this twice over. This is his father's strategery. Now he has adopted this pattern of strategery, this deception. We have debated righteous deception, foolish deception, mad deception. And again, I've challenged you to consider at least the possibility of it being difficult to put yourself in his shoes and in her shoes. To consider the fact that God never condemned them. God never said, hey, you're an idiot. What are you doing? Or that's absolutely wicked. What are you doing? And to consider living in a land that's lawless, living in a land surrounded by enemies, living in a land where you are surviving ultimately by strategery day by day. And the reality that should they know that this is your wife and desire her, they very well may kill you and take her and she may not land as a wife or even as a concubine where she lands could be far worse and where your children land could be far worse. And so I can lend some grace to the idea of strategery, even if it seems like it may be foolish, even mad. And I'm not as quick as many commentators to condemn it ruthlessly. Recognize that in a lawless land, beauty is dangerous. We encourage young women to flaunt themselves. We encourage them to behave in ways that would at least suggest that they are open to fornication, uh, if not to actually be open to fornication. We encourage them to dress immodestly and to behave in patterns that would be congruent with that dress. In a lawful world that's relatively safe, although the wage of sin is death, and thus pregnancy happens and millions of abortions happen, heartache, heartbreak happens again and again and again because the wage of sin is death. In this culture that is embracing sexual revolution as if this is the most wonderful thing ever, what does it actually produce? Pain, suffering, and death. And who experiences the most pain, suffering, and death? The women. The women, because they are more emotionally connected, because they are the ones that end up pregnant, because when they take the life of their child, it's their child in their womb. They are the mother. And the man often walks away and shuts it out and never remembers again. But that woman will later in life often become a mother. And it's hard to forget those things. And they bear those scars. And it's terrible. And these lies of the devil, hey, the sexual revolution is fantastic. It's a party for everyone. And no, it's not. It's death for everyone to some level, but in particular for the women. And so we want to protect our ladies from this godless culture. Protect them with modesty, both in dress and behavior. Protect them by shaming Shameful behavior, the idea that men can behave like dogs, talk about women in lustful ways, glare after them, 
and whatnot. And so Isaac uses the same strategy and receives a very similar rebuke from Abimelech. Abimelech saying, quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. It is interesting that this non-Yahweh worshiper, this Philistine, says you would have brought guilt on us. That's interesting. Seems to be a, a common revelation, a concept left over from Adam and Eve. Remember, these are all descendants of Adam and Eve. And remember that we, we are all image bearers of God, and so the law of God's written upon our hearts. Thus, he says, you would have brought guilt on us. And notice verse 11, much like Abimelech of old, much like in Abraham's experience, this Abimelech charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife should be put to death. Now, Abimelech of old gave gifts to Abraham. And so that's where I say, I, I don't see the Lord rebuking the strategery. I don't see the Lord honoring it and saying, way to go, either. And so I think it falls under grace. So covenant promise mixed with famine, strategery, and then prosperity, then prosperity. Right after the strategery, much like Abraham before him, we see prosperity. Third point, verse 12, then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man began to prosper and continued prospering and became very prosperous. That's prosper three x or is it 100x? That'd be a good investment, would it not? A hundredfold, prosperous, prosperous, prosperous. Verse 14, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So this prosperity is the gift of God. Remember, just like famine comes through the providential hand of God. Prosperity comes through the providential hand of God. And when we receive one with faith, we're more prepared to receive the other with faith. If we can receive famine with faith, trust God, walk with God, believe God, obey God, have joy in God through famine, then we're in a good position to receive prosperity from that same hand of providence and to trust the Lord. Prosperity. Then Isaac sowed in that land, and he reaped. Prosperity didn't come, again, arbitrarily. It, it didn't just fall out of heaven. The Lord has charged us to subdue the land, to work and subdue the land. And we can't expect God to prosper us, especially as men, right? Now, while there are times where God just lavishes prosperity on us in one way or another, it, it does seem to fall out of heaven. But the general course of the world is that we need to go and work. We need to labor by the sweat of the brow. We need to get some thorns stuck in our hands and come home having earned the bread. And how much bread? Now that's up to God. Give me this day. Our daily bread is our prayer. But sometimes God gives a whole warehouse full. <laughs> a hundredfold. It's a lot of bread. We call it wonder bread, right? Bad joke. Then Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. 
And he saw it as a blessing, I have no doubt. As he walked with faith through the famine and he didn't bemoan God, how could you allow this famine? He walked with God in faith. Now he receives the prosperity and he doesn't say, look at, look at what I have created. <laughs> but he gives God the glory. And the Philistines envy him. Envy him. And here's what we learn in a fallen world that even prosperity can be a curse. Your prosperity leads to the envy of others. And they can be so envious at times that they will despise and hate you. And we have a term for that, a modern term. It's called equity. Equity. You see, the idea of woke equity is not found in the Bible. The idea of sovereignty, that God blesses some in some ways and others in other ways. God brings judgments on some in some ways and others in other ways. God blesses some men who work hard to this level and some men who work hard a hundredfold. And God is sovereign in it and good and wise in it. And we are gladly subject to the Lord in famine and in prosperity. And should God grant someone else prosperity, we don't sit over there full of envy, hating them. Because they live in a bigger house or a nicer place or drive a better car. They got the promotion or whatever. And of course, there will be times of injustice in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yet we trust God even in that. He is sovereign even in that. And we don't get all bitter and caught up. And we certainly don't live in the past trying to live life now according to all the injustices over the last centuries. That's impossible. It's impossible to live life now trying to right the injustices of centuries past. And so they envy. And they envy so much that they come to him. Abimelech comes to Isaac, verse 16, and says, Go away. (laughs) Go away from us, for you're much mightier than we. It's time that you go away. Now, to some level, that, that can be a peacekeeping action, right? You're getting too prosperous and our people are envying you. If we're going to have peace, we need some space. And so he says to go away. Proverbs 30 verse 8 is a prayer. It says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That is such a healthy proverbial prayer. You don't want more than your character can sustain, nor do you want less. You want exactly what God, in His perfect wisdom, appropriates to you. And remember what you deserve. If you truly want justice, I mean, if you're a hardcore equity justice kind of guy or gal, then what you're getting is hell, because that's what's just. I'll take grace. And whatever God in His sovereign grace wants to bestow upon me, in addition to eternal life? Are you kidding me? In addition to the manna of heaven, I get donuts now? Well, this is good. This is really good. In addition to manna forever, the manna who is Jesus, I get my daily bread. Give me this day my daily bread, Lord. Wow, this is amazing. Food now and forever? Thank you, Lord. Life today and eternal life? Thank you, Lord. And should even the Lord withhold 
life today, by withholding bread today, I have the bread of eternal life. Should I starve, I go to glory and I will never want again. I'll never want again. Plus, they'll save money on my funeral expenses. You know, less ash, smaller coffin, fewer pole bearers. I don't know. Matthew 6, 8, Jesus teaching here says, Therefore, do not be like them. Don't be like the unbelievers. Don't be like the pagans. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. He knows. And then skipping down to verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. You know, we want assurance of the full career and retirement. And even that when we die, our relative wealth will safely you know, land in the hands of our beloved children who will use it for the glory of God or never see a dollar. And we can't demand to have the map all unfolded. The Lord says to pray this, give us this day our daily bread. That's the page of the map you're on. That's what you get. The secret things belong to the Lord. And we've got to leave that there in faith. So covenant promises mixed with famine, strategery, and prosperity. And we see even in that prosperity that it's mixed with some hardship and that it produces envy. And then we're told to go away. Move on down the road. But God is sovereign in all of it, from the covenant to the famine to the strategery, God rules sovereign over it all, even in our errors, even in our foolishness, even in our outright sin. God sovereignly works it all in His amazing grace for our good. It's astounding. And then we find conflict. Conflict. Verse 17. Then Isaac departed, and from there pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. So Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, which literally means quarrel, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well and quarreled over that one also. So he called his name Sitna which means enmity. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, which means spaciousness. Because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Conflict. In this world you will have conflict. To think otherwise is foolish. It's unrealistic. There will be conflict. Non-believers have conflict with non-believers, with believers, increasingly so, as they're being trained daily to, and with God Himself. Non-believers have all sorts of conflict. The richest, most powerful people in the world have all sorts of conflict. They tend to blow their families up. They tend to blow their psyches up. Sometimes they literally blow themselves up. And so fame, wealth, power, position, that doesn't guard you from conflict. Being a Christian certainly will not guard you from conflict. And most of our forefathers throughout the generations that have come before us did not know peace in this world, a conflict-free existence in this world because they followed Jesus. Jesus didn't say, follow me and your life will be conflict-free. 
God did not say to Abraham, come out from your people to this land of Canaan and you'll never have conflict again. And he didn't say it to Isaac either. And Isaac doesn't seem to expect it. He deals with the conflict. Now at times, one time in particular, Abraham called up his army and rode off to war. Literal conflict to rescue his nephew Lot. He rode off to war. And at some times, as the scriptures say, there is a time for war. Well, this was not a time for war. This was a time to trust God and to keep moving, to keep moving. Now, do you think that might have been a bit frustrating? These stinking Philistines, Lord, in the land that you gave me and my father, where he had to buy his own grave. Is that how your prayer starts? Maybe not exactly. Maybe your details are different, but be careful. Is that the cry of your heart? Be careful. I don't think it was the cry of Isaac's heart. I don't. I think he's walking by faith and he's following the Lord and his providence. And it seems like it's time to move in the land of Canaan, not down to Egypt, not out of the land of Canaan, but it's time to move in the land of Canaan away from Abimelech and the Philistines. And as he's moving, he has to unstop the wells that his father dug. Every time, you know, personally speaking, as I'm sweating, (laughs) that would be irritating. And you unstop the well, and hey, water's flowing, and who should show up right on time? Oh, the very same Philistines, or at least their descendants, who stopped it in the first place. To say, hey, hey, give us the well, that's our well. No, no, my father dug it. In his land. And he moved on from enmity, or quarrel to enmity, to finally Rehoboth. The Lord has made room, spaciousness. For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And so there is conflict. Philippians chapter 1 speaks of this conflict in our modern context as Christians. Remember, Ultimately, Isaac's having the same conflict. Why is he in that land? He's in that land to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, to ultimately produce a land and a seed and a blessing that will bless all of mankind forever. Philippians 1.27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. And we are going to need verse 28 in particular, all of it as a whole, but verse 28, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. What I'm hearing out there is just a constant cry of terror. Ah! The savages are coming. The savages are coming. The homosexuals are coming. The lesbians are coming. The transgenders are coming. The furries are coming. The non-genders are coming. The leftists are coming. Are they coming? Or are we going? Go, therefore. Why are we sitting around waiting for them to come? And why are they coming? In a land that was once dominated by the biblical worldview, why are they coming for us? In a land where... Godless, atheistic communism was once shameful and very near illegal. 
in a land where homosexuality was once exceedingly shameful and actually illegal, why are they coming for us? I'll tell you why. Because we didn't go for them. And we're still not. As a rule, the evangelical church, evangelical meaning good news, isn't going and proclaiming the good news or the bad news. The good news, you can be saved. The bad news, you're not saved. You're already damned. And unless you repent and confess Christ as Lord, you will remain damned forever. And eternity for you will be the wrath of the Almighty from which there is no escape. And so because the church has refused to go, the world, Satan's children, are coming for us. Because the children of God would not go and take the land, the children of the devil are taking the land. And how sad, how sad, when this land was taken largely by men and women who were stepping out in faith, following the Lord, desiring to take a land for Jesus, to have a land to live in freely, to serve the Lord, to raise up godly offspring. And then they had a vision beyond that to send the Bible and the gospel and missionaries to the other lands of the earth. And now the continual cry of, the vast majority of Christians, is one to just complain against leftist dogma, to complain against communism and globalism and perversion, and then to want to run from it, but not to run to it. Men run to the battle. Be a man of God. Women of God also run to the battle, and it starts in our homes, praise God, and then in every other relationship, in every other place, We need to run to the battle, not away. As a rule, there are times strategically where the Apostle Paul or others would retreat. The Lord Jesus would retreat. But at times, they would show back up the next day again in the same place. And the times where they're retreating, that's typically when they were taking up the stones to actually stone them right there on the spot. And so there will be conflict. But we're not to be terrified by our adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Are we proving in our fearless living? Are we proving in our fearless adherence to the word of God? Are we proving in our fearless declaration of God's moral law and his narrow path gospel? Are we proving the truth? the proof of their perdition and our salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. It was granted to Abraham, it was granted to Isaac, not only to believe Yahweh and to follow Yahweh, but to suffer as they followed Yahweh. And they did. As they experience blessings, the blessings are mixed with suffering. There is conflict. Revelation 2.10 says, Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and it will give you a crown of life. Jesus did not come to give you your best life now. Jesus came to give you your best life later in eternity. He calls us now to be faithful, to fight a good fight, to live for His glory, to be unafraid. Do not fear of those things which you're about to suffer. 
The devil's opposition is real. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, he says. He doesn't say run. He doesn't say hide. He doesn't say flee. He says be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life. I'll give you the crown of life. What are you living for? Your best life now, your easiest life now, or the crown of life forever? Live for the crown of life. Live like Abraham and Isaac, who had a lot of folds in the map yet to be unfolded, and they couldn't see how it was all going to work out at all in the long term or even in the short term, and yet they walked by the grace of God in faith, surrounded by their enemies constantly. So, covenant promise mixed with famine, strategy, prosperity, conflict, covenant confirmation and comfort. Verse 23, covenant confirmation and comfort. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called in the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahazoth, one of his friends, and Fickle, the commander of his army, and Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. And so they want a covenant of peace because they see the blessings of the Lord and they get their covenant of peace. In verse 31, they depart from him in peace. Verse 32, it came to pass that same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So it's called Sheba, which means well of oath or covenant. Therefore, the name of the city is called Beersheba to this day. So covenant, confirmation, and comfort, relative comfort. Isaac settles in. His family settles in. His people settle in. And they're prospered and they're growing. So much so that even though there's some distance now that Abimelech comes with his general, right? So there's still a threat of conflict there. He comes with his general and his friend, who no doubt is a powerful man and has a troop behind him. And Isaac responds to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? If you want to know, again, when you should flee, generally speaking, when your life is truly threatened or the life of your family, when they exile you, I mean, if they send you to the island of Patmos, You can trust that it was the providence of God to minister in the island of Patmos for a while and write your book of Revelation, right? Until then, I'm quite sure John stayed in some city center and preached the word of God, even though other apostles had already been killed. He stayed and preached until they exiled him. And then my understanding is eventually he got off Patmos and went back and preached somewhere and they boiled him to death. Didn't see that fold of the map coming. I don't want to see that fold of the map coming. I just want to be faithful where the Lord has placed me, where the Lord has called me to serve. 
Covenant confirmation and comfort. He went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him in the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. Hear those words today. They're for you. They're for you. They're for you. They're for you. If you are Christ, do not fear. He is with you. You're serving the same God. I like that. I'm the God of your father, Abraham. This is your God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is with you. In the same way he was with Samson. If you feel a little bit like a Samson, you're kind of that wild Christian. Get right, first of all, say, God was with Samson. I love it, right? He's a wild man, but God is with him. Now, it doesn't end well for the wild man, but saved by grace alone, it ends glorious. Blind, chained between two pillars. That's not how I want to end. <laughs> but pulling those pillars down on the enemies of God as a judgment of God, as God's judge. That's what he was, you recall, right? He's a judge. That's the role he filled. God is with us. He has not abandoned us. God has not abandoned America or Christians in America or Christians in the West or Christians in the earth today. Oh no, globalism. Oh no, communism. Oh no, perversion. Oh no, pride month. How will we survive? Well, I'm not looking to survive. And God's not looking for you to survive. He's looking for you to march as to war. To take the land. For Christ, as much as it's possible, as if it were up to you, knowing that it's utterly up to God. But retreat is not the call. If you hear the trumpet today, the trumpet is sounding advance. Everywhere, all the time. And the Lord is saying, I am with you. The spirit of Jonah is on everyone. No, I don't want to go. Those people are perverted. They deserve hell. They're globalists. Big pharma, big tech. They deserve hell. We're just going to retreat over here. We're going to get on a ship to Tarshish. You're going to end up being whale spit. It's not going to go well for you. It's fish spit, technically. The abundant Christian life is not the other way. Jesus said, go, and you run the other way. That's not the abundant Christian life. Think of the Christians he said, go, therefore, to, in the context in which they lived. In that time, people lived and died every day based upon what they believed about God or the gods or didn't believe about God or the gods. And yet Jesus said, go. So covenant confirmation and Comfort. This covenant that I gave your father, I give to you. I'm with you, Isaac. Do not fear, for I'm with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. Was God a liar? No, you're part of the descendants. You are part of the spiritual descendants of Isaac. You owe, in part, your faith that has saved you to Isaac. Because he walked in faith. Today, by the grace of God, you walk in faith. The faith is handed off generation to generation to generation. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and he called on the name of the Lord. He pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So he dug in. This is going to be home. We're sticking it out here. 
He built an altar. He worshiped the Lord. He pitched his tent. Pitched his tent. The home you just left, it's just a tent. The home you leave in now and you will soon leave, it's just a tent. We're just passing through. So enjoy the tent. Fix it up. Guard around it a little bit. But don't get too attached because we're just passing through. It's just a tent. This is not our home. Now notice, this army comes to him, and they say, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. Recall Philippians 1, 27 and following. Our fearlessness, our boldness in the gospel, is to them proof of perdition, but to us of salvation. Isaac's bold following of Yahweh God, boldly living out there in the midst of enemies, and the blessings of God on him in that context, convict them, we have certainly seen the Lord is with you. Now, I don't think they're converts just yet, but they're seeing something. It's got their attention. And they've come out to testify of it, and they want peace because they don't want this people that's growing out here to come and conquer them. So they desire peace, and they get it. Final point. Sorrows among blessings. Very brief point. But again, it's a sober reminder. There will be sorrows amongst blessings. There will be hardships amongst joys. Verse 34 and 35. When Esau was 40 years old, who is Esau? The firstborn son of Isaac. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Basemith the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Because essentially he married a tribe of the Canaanites. He married into a godless people. And so their hearts are are burdened by the pagan wives that Esau takes. And it's a tragedy. It's the greatest earthly tragedy. To be a recipient of the grace of God and to have a child that at least at this time, is not a recipient of that grace. Which is why as long as we're living and they're living, we're fighting a good fight for their precious souls. That they would not depart from God. That they would not leave the family of God going the way of the world. So sorrows among blessings. What a grand story of the unfolding grace of God. And may it encourage you, as in your life, God's grace will unfold in a similar but not identical way. Similar. There will be sorrows and joys. There will be mountaintops and valleys. There will be unexpected lefts and unexpected rights. And yet, if you are a child of God, He is with you. And you will be with Him forever, and nothing can separate you from the love of God, ever. And all of God's saints said, amen. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth. We thank you, Father, for these dear servants, Isaac and Rebecca. Thank you for your grace upon their precious souls and their lives. 
Thank you for how you sustained them as you unfolded your grace day by day, season by season of their lives. And Lord, that map has continued to unfold all the way down to our day as the Abrahamic covenant is still being fulfilled and we are part of it as spiritual descendants. And so we praise you for your grace to us, Lord, and we pray for the grace to walk day by day in this hour of history as you continue to unfold the map of our individual lives and all of us together. May we magnify Christ. May we not retreat, but advance the kingdom of Christ in the earth for your glory and that of your Son in the power of your Spirit. And we pray in his mighty name. Amen.